from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says climate change poses an existential threat and will continue to have worsening implications for national security. In response, the Defense Department will incorporate climate change as a factor into all areas of its strategy and planning. A DOD press release says that climate change could contribute to migration, insecurity and instability, all of which threaten U.S. allies and partners. The Pentagon policy chief Colin Call says terrorists in Afghanistan could have the capability to launch attacks against the United States within the next six months to a year. Members of ISIS-K have already begun attacks on the ground in Afghanistan, but Call says carrying out attacks in other countries is more complicated. He has previously acknowledged that the Biden administration's visibility into Afghanistan is lacking. Forbes reports that the Navy is deploying three of its littoral combat ships to the western Pacific Ocean. Those ships are designed for operations close to shore. Despite delays, the Navy is still working to decommission some of its other ships. The service's first littoral combat ship was decommissioned after only 13 years in the fleet. Our team attended the Association of the U.S. Armies, or AUSA, conference. At the event, I spoke with Heidi Hsu, the new Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, about the top innovations in her department and even virtual reality programs. Here's a look at the conversation. Secretary Hsu, welcome to the program. Thank you. So what are some of the top innovations that you're working on at the Defense Department? Wow, we don't have enough time to cover it all, but I'll just talk about a few things, okay? In the area of AI and ML and autonomy, there's been billions of dollars that's invested in this area, especially in the commercial industry, right? What I'm really interested in is building the trust into AI ML, the trust in the autonomy. Because if we have an unmanned platform that does something that the operator didn't anticipate, the operator will get suspicious and lose trust. So I want to focus the research to develop the trust and the assurance, and perhaps the ability to even dial the level of trust and and autonomy, okay? So that's one of the key areas I would like to focus on. Uh, Another key area, if I may share with you, would be to be able to operate in the intersection of signals intelligence, uh, communications, radar, electronic warfare with cyber. Because threats today are so advanced, you don't have time to say, I see something, that's a that's an adversary, then cue something else to perform some effects, right? So it's important to have the ability to operate in the intersection so you can do it very, very rapidly. You head up the new innovation steering group uh, at the DOD. Tell me about that and what your strategy is to meet its goals. Uh, So my first hour into the Pentagon, DepSecDef told me, I stood up the innovation steering group and it's yours to chair. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) ma'am. So there are several things we're doing in there, just let you know. One, we're doing a campaign of continuous experimentation and demonstrations. 
Turkey to fulfill a joint warfighting capability gap. This is Project Convergence. Uh, this, no, uh, Project Convergence is the Army, okay? This is the radar. What we're doing is across the Department of Defense, so all the services are tied in, okay? We were collaborated with all the services, collaborated with all the COCOMs, and we've collaborated uh, with, with just about everybody we know, right? And we actually received 203 white papers, okay? And out of that, we down-selected the top 32, okay? And that's the top 32 project that will best fulfill the capability gaps, and we're, we're doing that in FY23. The other thing that we're doing in, uh, uh, in the uh, Innovation Steering Team is uh, we're looking across the department. Every service has stood a whole bunch of different innovation centers, right? So we are looking across to figure out who's, who has what mission, what have they bought, from whom, and what capability are they fulfilling what have they transitioned to the warfighter, right? And what are some of the best practices so we can leverage that across other small companies, right? And then the third thing we're doing is we're looking across our laboratory infrastructures and facilities, say, are we funding appropriate amount of lab equipment, laboratories, and facilities so our researchers can have the latest and greatest? Can you point to any specific successes you've had with that group? Well, uh, I've only been in the Pentagon for two and a half months. So. Well, that's long enough. <laughs> that's long enough. So we're really getting our arms around. This is something that's brand new. So we're looking towards uh, collecting the information in that in particular. And hopefully by next year, I'll be able to report out back to you. Okay, sounds good. How has the Chief Technology Officer role changed? Um, in the last few years to match the constant innovation and evolution of technology? Yeah, I think one of the things I'm trying to drive is uh, organizationally, I'm, I'm changing and pivoting a, a little bit. I want to have an organization that's informed by intelligence. Namely, I want to understand what our adversaries are investing in and what they are doing in terms of fielding and demonstrating in terms of capabilities, right? And from that, I want to look at what we're doing in our own internal research, uh, not just within the DOD laboratories, but also look at what are small companies funding and doing research in, what are our FFRDC UARCs working in, and our defense contractors, what are they investing in terms of IRAP, right? And how can I get things to better closely collaborate together. Then another organization what I'm focusing on is on the modernization initiatives, which I have a dozen, okay? And then uh, the last pillar of what I'm doing is I'm looking at all the joint warfighting capability gaps, okay? And I will have a focal point for each of the joint warfighting capability gaps to fully understand across the services what's missing, okay? And then help that tie into building prototypes and experimentation to close those capability gaps. So we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I wanna ask you about virtual reality and um, 
kind of how you're working with the gaming industry to bring those technologies into DoD. Okay. If you look at the gaming industry, they are pushing the state of the art, right? And it's very impressive where they're going. Think about a couple of things that we need, okay? If we can build digital twins of our system and enable the AR, VR world to tie into a digital twin and tie into a virtual simulation, we can now encompass all of that and put, a, put our warfighter into a more realistic environment. Because you can't necessarily always get into that type of environment, right? But to create this opportunity so the, so the warfighter can experience it in as much realism as possible will be incredibly powerful. Well, there's so much more to talk to you about, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Secretary Xu, for this. Thank you. Coming up, next-generation combat vehicles and Army modernization efforts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with the general in charge of the cross-functional team on the latest from his office. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The next-generation combat vehicles are a priority for the Army's modernization plans. At the AOSA conference, we spoke with Major General Ross Kaufman, who leads that team. Take a look. General Kaufman, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to see you again. So tell me about the next-generation um, combat vehicle cross-functional team. What are you trying to accomplish? What that all is all about? Okay, so I am blessed to lead 30 people in Detroit, Michigan. They're rock stars, all-star, military and civilian, and they're focused on a couple of different areas. Number one, and the number one priority is the obsolete man fighting vehicle to replace the Bradley. Number two, our second priority is our robotic combat vehicle fleet. So think five to seven tons or 10 to 12, 12 ton robots or over 20 ton robots that are modular uh, missions, uh, payloads. So they're payload agnostic and they can do, they can go sense, they can engage, they can detect chemicals, they can do reconnaissance on their own, it's pretty exciting stuff. The third one is a light tank, which is uh, going to be in all of our light formations. So think 125 millimeter cannon that can remove obstacles or pediments so that the infantrymen can get on the objective. And then finally the 113 replacement, which, uh, you know, that 113 has been in the, in the force for about 60 years and uh, it's it served its purpose, but it's time to move on. And so the AMP-V is not fancy, it's just tough, and it's able to keep pace with our uh, modern uh, weapon systems. So that's that, and then we also have a little piece of Project Convergence. Let's go back to the optionally manned vehicle, because that's really interesting that you can have this big tank essentially not have a driver. How far away are we from that? Oh, we're very close. Uh, so when you start talking robotics, um, right now today, most countries that are in this space, and you see a lot about Russia and, and China in this space, let, let me tell you what they can do. They can, they can teleop, so remote control cars that, that have been around since we were children, uh, they can do that. They can do obstacle avoidance, so they can use LIDARs and other things to detect obstacles and not drive into them. And then they can do waypoint navigation, so you can say, I want you to drive from A to B to C, and then when you get to C, stop. Okay? That's the common ground that all countries are on today. Uh, the space that we're in, in the competition, and I won't, I'm not going to tell you where we are in this space because it, it is sensitive, 
is the autonomous package. So when you talk about an on-road autonomy, that's really hard. But there's set rules. There's stop signs, they all look alike, there's lines on the road. But when you start talking off-road autonomy, the, the machine doesn't know if it's a puddle or a lake. Um, LIDARs can be detected by your enemy. Um, is there a obstacle there that's, that uh, is going to get caught up in your wheels? Well, a human would instantly know that, but the machine doesn't. So we have to go through trial and error, training algorithms, and, and uh, that's going to take some time. We're not going to be fully autonomous uh, off-road for several years. And uh, so, but it's exciting. It's an exciting space, and it's going to change the battlefield because it, it's going to expand where you can have robots go make contact with the enemy, which reduces risk to uh, our forces and gives us decision space. Tell me about your strategy for fully electric vehicles and why you would want to do that. Okay, I would absolutely want a fully electric vehicle. Uh, as long as you can charge those batteries in the same time you can fill up a tank of gas. And we're not there yet. That's important. Right. So, <laughs> I, uh, what, right now, hybrid is great because I can charge, I can, I'm self-healing. I can charge the batteries and I have a motor when I, if I get the batteries out of juice. Um, but you'd want the, the uh, fully electric because it's silent on the battlefield. There's no engine noise. Uh, it's good for the environment. It uh, allows you to move very quietly into the flank of your enemy and put yourself in a position of relative advantage undetected. Any army in the world would want that. So th these are some reasons why we'd want it. But it, it, it needs a little bit of development to get the batteries charged fast enough or uh, replaced fast enough to make it worth our while. You once told me that if you're not excited about robotics, then we can't be friends. That's right. Why are you so excited about robotics? Well, first of all, it's reducing the risk to our soldiers. And I love soldiers. Uh, so if we can reduce the risk to our soldiers, uh, that's one piece. Second, we can now do things that we couldn't do before or without adding risk. Like, currently, if you had your scouts out in front of your formation and the enemy was coming, well, you had a decision to make as a commander. You could pull the, you, you need to decide, am I going to leave them there so now they're effectively behind enemy lines? Or do you pull them back and lose your coverage? Now with a robot, I can leave my sensors forward with both air and ground unmanned vehicles. I can track the enemy in, and now I can make decisions and make hit him or her deploy faster and then put ourselves in a place of relative advantage because the robots. Uh, and that's just one example. But it, it's, it is absolutely going to change the, the geometry. It's going to change a lot of things on the battlefield. And so, yeah, if you don't like robots, we can't be friends because that's the future. I understand that Project Convergence came about from a conversation that you had with General Murray at Futures Command. How so, did that come about? So uh, what we wanted to determine was if space, air, and ground sensors could identify vehicles by type and geolocate them, and then have a brain in the background uh, pair those targets with, with shooters to reduce the time it took uh, from minutes to seconds to engage and destroy targets on the battlefield. So when uh, we started down that road, I briefed General Murray on December 23rd, and he, he was all in and said, okay, student body left, we're moving in this direction. <laughs> And uh, Kaufman, you got the lead, and and we all 
all the CFT directors, all the PEOs, all the science and technology advisors locked arms and we accomplished something that had never done, been done before. We had closed the sensor to shooter timeline to seconds on the battlefield, which is really amazing. And now this year's team that's leading that, led by Toby Magzik, Colonel Toby Magzik down to JMC, uh, Lieutenant General Richardson, they are just taking it to the next level. It is really exciting stuff. All right. Well, General Kaufman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Up next, the ongoing continuing resolution creates challenges for the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the biggest impacts for DOD and what the department is doing right. We'll be right back. The continuing resolution passed by Congress affects every agency's ability to fund new initiatives. For the Pentagon, the CR will stall new START programs as well as production increases. Todd Harrison is Director of Defense Budget Analysis and the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, welcome. Hi, good to be back. Continuing resolutions have become pretty common. Uh, the Pentagon has learned to work around them, but what are the biggest problems that you see the CR creating that can't be worked around? Yeah, well, you know, not only have they become common, uh, you know, looking back at the data over the past 50 years or so, uh, DOD has started the fiscal year on a continuing resolution 80% of the time. So not only is it common, it's normal. <laughs> uh, and so DOD has adapted its processes, its programs and plans. Uh, and, you know, generally one of the ways you adapt is you recognize when you're putting together uh, plans for new start programs and production increases um, that don't count on being able to do that and begin execution in the first quarter of the fiscal year. Uh, so program managers, you know, if they've been around the Pentagon at all, uh, they know this. Uh, and so they're not planning to do these things in the first quarter of the fiscal year. And so generally uh, short-term CRs, they just last one, two, three months, they're not that disruptive. It's when the CR gets past three months that it starts to become more disruptive on what the Pentagon was planning to do. So would you say that there are any specific military services that are particularly affected by a CR? Well, they're all affected. Uh, they all have new start programs. Um, you know, I'm looking at some things in particular, tracking uh, the Air Force, various programs. Um, you know, that they were planning uh, as new starts this year. There's even activities uh, like standing up the Space Forces Space Warfighting and Analysis Center. Uh, there's new funding for that in the budget and under a continuing resolution, they don't have the funding yet. Uh, so some of these activities uh, are going to be slowed down and various, you know, development programs that uh, they were planning to start or, or move to a different phase of development, they just can't do that yet. So what are the actual workarounds that new START programs will have to use besides maybe putting off starting in the beginning? Is there other things that they can do to work around? Well, there's not a lot. You have to be careful uh, because Congress, you know, intentionally writes continuing resolutions to prevent 
uh, these new starts and things because they haven't had a chance yet to approve them uh, and to determine what they want to allow to go ahead uh, and, and what does Congress not uh, approve of and, and does not want to allow to get started or to increase you know a production rate of particular weapon systems. So you know there's there's really not a lot they can do to get around it. And you know it's worth pointing out that that pain is intentional, right? If Congress provided exceptions in the continuing resolution and said, oh, you know, this new start program is an exception, we'll allow it to go ahead, or this production increase is okay, we'll allow it to go ahead. The more exceptions they make, the less painful the continuing resolution is. And at some point, if the continuing resolution is not sufficiently painful, then there's not a good forcing function for Congress to come back and actually pass a regular full year appropriations bill. Right. And there was a GAO report that said, you know, the Pentagon's done pretty well in managing with CRs. It has, yes. And if you know, you look at the record, it's uh, the Pentagon actually, the financial managers are, are wizards of a sort. Uh, they can do a lot of things uh, to help recover once a regular appropriations bill is passed. Uh, and so they can try to speed things up in the second part of the fiscal year to recover time lost earlier. You know, there's only so much they can do. Uh, there's only so much magic, budgetary magic they can pull. Um, when a continuing resolution, you know, gets as long as six months, we even had one a few years ago that lasted seven months into the fiscal year. Um, there's, you know, increasingly fewer things that you can do uh, to recover at that point. So there's a December 3rd deadline, I believe. What's going to happen at the Pentagon as we get closer to that deadline? Well, they're going to be watching closely, and you know one of the you know difficulties under continuing resolution is the money gets allocated out uh, slowly, right? And so they have to keep uh, dribbling the money out uh, to program managers um, and commanders across the force uh, so that they don't overspend. Uh, and so they're watching that carefully as they go. All right, we'll wait and see. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, follow us to get the latest updates, and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.